0: reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart." Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? And folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful. who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks
1: Let's stand as David reads to us the gospel reading.
2: The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew in the second chapter, beginning at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? that they had seen was in when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the Gospel of Christ.
1: As you stand, would we pray together, please? Father, in this sacred time and space, we have been captivated by you and your presence. And may we continue to be so, our ears tuned for your words, our hearts receptive to their transforming power. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Sometimes I wonder about the use or value of a sermon at a time like this, and yet we Surrender it all to God and God's good purposes. Convince that God is with us, among us, and is here to do a good, mighty, and powerful work in and through us. On that truth I rest. This past Thursday was the Feast of Epiphany, which is when we in the Christian West celebrate the visit of the wise men to see Jesus. The story of that visit is told in... Matthew chapter 2, our gospel reading. It has become part of the familiar and the comfortable fabric of our Christmas experiences. Our creches and pageants represent them, usually three of them, with their regal bearing, their camels, and their costly gifts. But much of what is part of our celebration of these mysterious visitors is the stuff of legend and has little basis in the biblical story itself. A great deal of creative energy has gone into fleshing out the cryptic and difficult story we find in Matthew's Gospel. Over the centuries, they were numbered. While the most common number was three, in large part because three gifts are mentioned, the ancient Syriacs, for example, believed there were twelve. They've been given titles while they're identified simply as wise men. In the text, they became identified as courtiers or even kings themselves. One reason for that was the costly nature of the gifts they brought. But there was also the desire for this story to be the fulfillment of Old Testament prophetic words like those found in Isaiah chapter 60, where it says, And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. Sounds familiar enough, doesn't it? Over time, the three kings were given names and countries of origin. Malkir was from Persia, Caspar from India, and Balthazar from Arabia. While all these details are accumulated layers of legend, identifying them as such does not make them by definition false. A great deal more research would be required to sift for kernels of truth among the accumulations of legend. However, my thinking is that such an exercise would be among the less beneficiary approaches to the story. So if you would turn to Matthew chapter 2, either in your bulletin, your Bible, your Bible app, or the Pew Bible in front of you on page 2 of the New Testament section, let's take a closer look at this strange story from a slightly different perspective, one which, I hope, will provide us with some insight and guidance for our daily lives as followers of Jesus. There is little wonder that there has been a compulsive need to add details to the story because not only is it cryptic, but it is difficult and in some respects deeply disturbing. One of the things I've come to love about the Bible as I've aged is that there are so few neat, tidy, and comfortable stories in it. The Bible's stories are every bit as ambiguous, complicated, and distressing as life itself, and yet somehow shot through with hope. And I've come to appreciate that so much about the biblical stories. This is one such story. So the first question we want to ask of our text is, if they weren't Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar, who were these men, and what were they up to? What were they doing? The Greek word magoi is a fairly imprecise word with a range of meanings that includes wisdom, scholarship, and magic. So Amagus could be a wise man, a scholar, a wonder worker, or some combination thereof. In ancient Persia, Amagus was a priest, scholar, magician. The value of the gifts that they brought hints at a social elite as well. They may not have been kings, but they were the elite of whatever societies they came from. Furthermore, there were astronomers and astrologers. They studied the stars and they believed that much could be learned about the world around them because of that study. Certainly, this part of the story is unsettling for us because our assumption is that astronomy and astrology are unrelated and neither will tell us anything about life and the lives of people. But that is a perspective that has only become an assumption in Western thought from the end of the 17th century with the scientific revolution and the rise of rationalism. Prior to that, astrology was assumed to be a legitimate scientific discipline, a noble path to knowledge and wisdom. So how can we today possibly make sense of these men being guided by God through what we believe to be a pseudoscientific discipline? Well, one way is with the understanding that God meets us where we are. With whatever assumptions and limitations we have, both individually and collectively. Because it is quite likely that in one or two hundred years, people will look back in our time and tisk condescendingly at how primitive and inexplicable some of our assumptions were. So, God met these people in the midst of their honest pursuit of knowledge, wisdom, and insight. God responded to that honest longing, and God guided them to the source of all wisdom and insight, Jesus, the eternal word of God. And they were wise enough to follow and to worship. But something happened along the way, didn't it? If the wise men were following a guiding star, there was a time when they stopped following that guide. Once they got to Judea, their own knowledge, experience, and wisdom told them the place to look for a new king was the capital city and the court of the existing king. Bethlehem was only about 10 kilometers or six miles south of Jerusalem, and they would have been following the same road from the east, most likely the road up from Jericho to Jerusalem. So it never crossed their minds that the star wasn't leading them to King Herod's court. They'd been around long enough to know where to look for a king. But that decision to rely on their own wisdom was a decision with catastrophic consequences. And our story ends with the shocking atrocity of mass infanticide by Herod. As Herod, riddled with fear, sought to keep his throne safe for himself and his heirs. What heirs were left? He killed his sons too. The closing words of our story hang hauntingly in the air. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. What can possibly be the edifying takeaways from such a confusing, disturbing, and offensive story? Despite my own discomfort with the story, I have three takeaways. Three. The first takeaway is one that we've already touched upon, that God meets us where we are. God doesn't wait for us to have a correct scientific worldview and a perfected theology before engaging us. God simply responds with unseemly indiscretion and haste to any evidence of an honest longing for truth, for wisdom, wherever and whenever those are found, and wherever they may take us. Years ago, when I was preparing for my comprehensive exams, I would sit in a 24-hour coffee shop and read late into the night, There was another grad student who was on a similar study rhythm, and over the weeks we began to converse and we got to know each other a little bit. He learned pretty quickly what I was studying and what my faith position was, and I came to learn that he was an atheist. What I sensed from him, however, was that this was an honest inquiry into the pursuit of truth. If C.S. Lewis was a reluctant convert to Christianity, this man felt like a reluctant atheist, he bore believers no malice. He didn't hate God in the church. He simply believed the available evidence precluded the possibility of a God. The part that I found interesting about our conversations was that I had a sense that in some ways, he was closer to God, despite not believing in God's existence, than some other people I encountered who were adamant that there was a God. The memory still bemuses me a little bit. I don't know what, quite know what to make of it but I do believe that the presence of the Spirit permeates any honest pursuit of the truth and that that wasn't the end of his personal journey of discovery. Jesus promised the disciples in John chapter 16 that when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. The wise men discovered that as they worshiped the one to whom they had been led by means of circuitous, even dubious paths. The second takeaway is that throughout our lives, we will be tempted to rely upon our own knowledge, experience, wisdom, and ability when faced with something that looks and feels familiar. We may even be aware initially of the guiding presence of the Spirit of God, but having started in the leading and power of the Spirit, we will be tempted to draw draw our own conclusions about what God is up to and then seek to bring it to fruition in our own wisdom and strength. While the results may not always be as catastrophic as our story, they will never approximate the wisdom and power of God's plan for us. As our reading from 1 Corinthians reminds us, human and divine wisdom are very different creatures. So different, in fact, that divine wisdom looks like foolishness to the wisdom of this world. Now, this isn't an invitation to anti-intellectualism at all, but rather an invitation to an humble acknowledgement of our limitations as humans. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Our knowledge and wisdom and understanding is never more than partial and incomplete. Blaise Pascal, Tim mentioned him in a a sermon recently. Blaise was a 17th century mathematician, philosopher, and inventor. He was one of the inventors of the mechanical adding machine. He lived and worked in the midst of the age of enlightenment. His early death at the age of 39 interrupted his important work on a number of things, one of which was the beginning of what would have been a very important philosophical work. It was collected and published posthumously as the pensée, or the thoughts. My favorite quote from the pensée, while the only quote I remember at this point, I read it many years ago, is his statement on reason. And it goes, The final step that reason must take is to recognize that there are an infinity of things which go beyond it. Any reason that does not take this step is a weak reason indeed. Such a statement would have been scandalously countercultural in his day, and it remains so for many today. But being able to acknowledge the limitations of our capacity to know and to understand will make it easier for us to offer our natural gifts, abilities, experiences, and insights to the ongoing guidance of the Spirit rather than to set them up in conflict with the Spirit. To their credit, when the wise men realized their mistake, they were able to set aside their own wisdom and assumptions. They returned to the guiding star and followed it wherever it led. The final takeaway is that the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world are so very different from each other, often antithetical. This is profoundly demonstrated in our story. In their defense, the wise men could not possibly have a frame of reference for seeking out a king in a stable or a working-class home, depending on when they arrived on the scene, in an obscure village far from the halls of power and influence. That's simply not how the world works. But it is how the kingdom of God works. In the kingdom of God, you lead by serving and you live by dying. Kings are born in stables, and victory is won by defeat and death on a cross. I'll say that again. In the kingdom of God, you lead by serving and you live by dying. Kings are born in stables, and victory is won by defeat and death on a cross. And every effort to establish the kingdom of God on earth by means of human, political, and institutional structures has ended in failure, sometimes spectacularly so. A key reason why, perhaps the key reason why, these efforts will always fail is because there are no political or institutional tools for what the kingdom of God is all about. The kingdoms and institutions of this world are about regulation, rules that place limits or constraints on behavior so that behavior doesn't impinge on the freedoms and rights of others. This is what the entire vast machinery of the legal system is about. Of course, we know that has never been equally applied to all people. Human efforts to regulate always unfairly advantage some to the detriment of others. The kingdom of God, however, is not about regulation, but about transformation. Unregenerate humanity careens through life wounded and wounding, selfish and self-serving, deceitful and destructive. And the worst of those behaviors do need to be curtailed and constrained for the sake of others. But in the kingdom of God, these attitudes and behaviors begin to undergo a change as the loving presence of the Spirit begins to heal our wounds and liberate us from the need to wound others. It begins to enlighten our eyes to the beauty of the image of God in the other and the joy of serving them. It begins to empower us to build others up rather than tear them down. And, almost without realizing it, bit by bit we become something entirely other than the person that we were. We begin to be transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus. Jesus. Our political and institutional structures simply have no tools for this. It is something that can only be brought about by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in and among us. Those, then, are my takeaways from the story of the wise men. God meets our honest seeking right where we are. Our wisdom is profoundly different from God's wisdom and our wisdom is not enough. And the kingdom of God is so very different from the kingdoms of this world because by the presence and power of the spirit, the kingdom of God is about transformation. Our transformation into the people God created and intended us to be. When I was a young man, we used to sing a song, one section of which is stuck with me, though I haven't heard it for almost 40 years. I can't believe I'm saying numbers like that. It went, if you come to him, you will hear him say, I love you too much to leave you this way. I love you too much to leave you this way. So as we embark on yet another calendar year, may we be wise enough to seek him, humble enough to submit our wisdom to God's wisdom, and eager participants in God's loving work of transformation